Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Happy Easter. We're going to head off into not really a different direction, but at least a different set of teachings. But uh, I'm sure you'll find that uh, the teachings always seem to be repeating themselves. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, it, it's easy to think that we already know it. And in a way, I think that's probably a useful perception, the sense that we know it. But it's really a matter of integrating what we know more and more deeply over time. Okay, maybe turn the lights on a little brighter. That'd be good. So I thought it'd be nice for the next uh, several months, maybe for the rest of the year, to go through this list of teachings on the paramis or the paramitas, the ten perfections of the heart. And this is a list, uh, you know, traditionally in Buddhism, it's an attempt to understand what the enlightened mind, what are the qualities that support insight or uh, support the experience of not clinging, not seeing things from a self-centered point of view. And uh, in terms of the tradition, it's also the list of qualities that the Buddha cultivated over many, many lifetimes, as the tradition uh, talks about it, uh, in order that when his insight arrived in his life as Siddhartha Gautama, this person 2,600 years ago, that he had all the skills that would make him a good teacher, really effective teacher. So it's considered to be like uh, perfecting the qualities of the heart. And instead of thinking about going out and getting those qualities, it's much more a matter of, of recognizing some of the, the essential ground of the heart or the mind. And we cultivate those inherent tendencies simply by noticing them. You know, we could spend our whole day or our whole life thinking all kinds of things about ourselves. And in doing that, we would be completely oblivious to other possibilities. So the first of the ten paramis is uh, dana, or generosity. And I'll just go through the ten real quick. I have a list here that you might want to pick up at the end of the night. I'll be having it around for a couple weeks. And it just lists the ten paramis, or the ten paramitas. So generosity, morality, which is the practice of not harming, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. So for the next several months, we'll be going, we'll be looking at each of these qualities of the heart, of the mind, and just getting a sense of what does this have to do with freedom? What does this have to do with a natural expression of the heart or mind, or the heart or mind not colored by self-centeredness or fear, greed, aversion. So the idea is not to like, imitate as we take up generosity for the next month or so. Not to feel like, okay, now this is the time to try to be a really generous person. 
I'm not that that would be bad, but just to contemplate what that what that is. What is generosity? What do we know about generosity? You know, and and where we often begin, what's so useful, is we can always begin with stinginess. I mean, we know the feeling of tightness and narrowness and like a kind of scarcity that we got to hold on to what's ours and in a sense of manipulating the world to get more, to get the attention of the people we want attention from and get recognized and get re- rewarded in the way that we think we should be rewarded. We had a board retreat yesterday, so both the present board members of Common Ground and the past board members, we get together once a year. Instead of a board meeting, it's called the board retreat. And it's meant to be more reflective. And we had this nice agenda that turned out to be just the, just the right thing. But just uh, six or so open-ended conversations. Who are we? What's working? What's not working? Where are we going? What other conversations do we need to have? How does our work as board members relate to our practice? Or how does our practice relate to being board members? Anyway, somewhere in the middle, in one of those conversations, um, we were the board. We were reflecting on uh, people who've been around for a while, people who've been practicing for a while, and how the center does or doesn't support their practice. Um, how can the center be useful for people who've been practicing for a while? Some of you know this feeling. You know, you've heard not dozens, but maybe hundreds and hundreds of Dharma talks, talks about the Buddhist teachings, practice. And, you know, after a while we've heard everything there is to hear. Because <laughs> it's, I mean, it's not that complicated. And here at Common Ground, we don't spend a lot of time sort of um, learning the minutiae of Buddhist teachings. We try to keep it right to the point of not clinging, not grasping. So it isn't long before we've kind of heard most of the teachings a couple times and can even anticipate what's going to happen next, what's going to be said next, maybe with joy, (laughs) maybe with aversion, depending on the night. So anyway, we were talking about this topic. And and I shared some thoughts just based primarily from my own experience, but also from observing a lot of other people in this boat of people who've been around for a while. And uh, talking about a a transition, and I think this happens for all of us in different arenas, like in the arena of a certain relationship we might have, maybe our intimate relationship, or maybe uh, just a friendship, or our family life, or parents, or siblings, community. But there's a, there's a pattern that generally unfolds, maybe in repeats over and over again, which is we begin a particular relationship pretty much with an idea of, well, what am I going to be able to get from this relationship? Or what do I want to get from this relationship? Or what don't I want to happen in this relationship? So it's kind of a strategic relationship that we have with different, different people, different organizations. And then after a while, maybe we 
feel like, well, this person or this organization or this spiritual tradition doesn't really have anything to give me, or it had a lot to give me, but I've gotten everything I wanted, or, you know, I'm never sure, I'm not even sure there, there was ever anything here to get even, you know, in the beginning. So maybe this is a big waste of time. But there's a sense of, like, there's nothing else, nothing I want. And we tend to pull away. And this is true with our partners sometimes, and with spiritual organizations, spiritual teachers, spiritual lineages. And there's an important uh, transition that I think really is important, needs to happen, which is we, we transform from being somebody, from a consumer, like a consumer of an intimate relationship or a consumer in terms of being a community member. Didn't John F. Kennedy say something about this? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. There's this transition where we realize that the next step in the relationship and my practice is not to be a consumer, but to be a giver, to give. So we start to show up, not to get something from the talk tonight, but we show up because that's what we do. It's an, it's an act of generosity to come here and sit. It's an act of generosity when, my, when our mind's all over the place to recognize the mind's all over the place as a way of coming back to the present moment. We get glimpses of this all the time in different ways, you know, that in the end it all comes down to love or comes down to generosity giving our life away, giving our heart away. But we don't really know what that means. You know, it, it takes a long time to get clear. We have some intuitive sense that's not about getting something, like getting enlightenment or getting freedom or getting away from our pain or becoming somebody special. But it's really the joy, the immediate joy there is and letting go or the immediate joy there is in committing or giving ourselves fully to something like just to this breath or just to being here tonight for this program. And to really show up as a human being with all of our warts and all of our beauty, just to really be real is a great act of generosity. Some of you have seen this in our um, thank you cards that we sent out over the last several years for the building fund printed on that card. We have this quote from the Buddha, joy comes not through possession or ownership, but through a wise and loving heart. So it's not so much who we are or what we have or, you know, or what we can become. But it's, it's really how we're, it's like how the heart is expressing itself right now. Is it, you know, is, there, is it living, are we living out of a sense of scarcity and fear and neediness, competition, craving, you know, where we're manipulating each other in order to get what we want or we think we want? Or is there a sense of abundance, a kind of uh, fullness, 
or completeness. I was talking to somebody recently about a really difficult situation in this person's life. And uh, we were talking about how when we're really sensitive to suffering, you know, like a friend or sibling or somebody we know, and we just really get that the person is suffering. And the question is, you know, what, because we're so sensitive, because we're aware that they're suffering, it triggers a lot of, you know, wanting to fix it, wanting their suffering to go away, not being okay with them, with the suffering that we see that we're sensitive to. And that, that is a lot, there's a lot of suffering there. It's, there's a, a lot of suffering being in a world like this world where there's so much injustice, so much suffering. Even if we're relatively immune because we live in a place like Minneapolis which is you know, relatively stable and people are Minnesota nice some of the time, most of the time. You know, it's a pretty stable, safe place, relatively speaking. But, but we know that's not how it is. You know, and we know here in Minneapolis there's a lot of suffering. I mean, even if it's not staring you right in your face, it doesn't take much imagination, much awareness to understand how much suffering, how much uh, pain there is that people are experiencing. So how do we relate to that? Where does generosity come from? The ability to show up, the ability to accept, the ability to listen, the ability to have loving thoughts. Somebody this morning gave the example of, this is a person who lost uh, his best friend this week and uh, he talked about how on Friday or Saturday, maybe a couple days after his friend had died and Friday night I think was the memorial service and then Saturday uh, he was walking out of Rainbow or something and uh, he just uh, heard someone sneeze and he stopped for a moment, turned to the person and just said, you know, God bless you or something like that. And, and the person said, thank you. And he was just struck by how powerful that moment was for him. And there's, um, you know, there's this place and it helps when we've had a lot of suffering, like a great loss, because we get so tenderized. You know, it sort of strips away a lot of the superficial superficiality in our minds when we're exposed to impermanence and pain. And so there he was, and uh, it's like the opportunity for connection arose in such an ordinary way, and because of maybe not so absorbed in drama, he just, he just opened to that possibility of connecting. It wasn't the words that were so important. It was just that feeling of wanting, of uh, like the heart connecting with another human being. You know, the, 
the sneeze, you know, is just a, like a mindfulness spell that something's happening. There's another human being around here. And just to kind of connect. I'm a human being, you're a human being, you know, may you be happy. I mean, there are many ways that we say, may you be happy, may you be at ease. And they don't, you know, often sound like that, <laughs> those different ways. Just a smile or just a little patience, holding a door. But in its essence, what it is, it's just showing up. It's like we're not so absorbed in our drama, in our stories, in our neediness, in our fears. We're not so consumed and absorbed that we discover, we realize this natural generosity, this heart that in a sense rises up from nowhere and goes everywhere. I mean, that's, that's the heart of wisdom or that's the enlightened heart, the free heart, is a heart that arises from nowhere and goes everywhere. It's an upwelling, a kind of natural abundance of the heart. Everybody here, of course, knows this experience. It's just a question of how much of a student of this we've become. Now, are we actively contemplating those moments? Are we noticing them? And, just as important, are we noticing the opposite experience, a kind of inner gravitational pull or tightness or narrowness? Like there's a bottomless pit. Some of you know in Buddhism, there's sort of a cosmological model, six realms of existence, and, you know, the, the deva realms, the celestial realms, and then uh, um, sort of the higher celestial realms, lower celestial realms, and uh, uh, human realm, animal realm, hungry ghost realm, hell realm. So all these different realms of existence. And uh, this hungry ghost realm, these beings are depicted as having these huge bellies, so great appetites, but just little pinhole mouths. So they can never consume, eat enough to be satisfied. Sort of infinite hunger and a very little capacity to actually appreciate or to be fulfilled. And, you know, we, this is, we have that, at least at times in our lives, we're really in that realm, you know, where we just can't be satisfied. I'm sure some of you have seen this with children, your own or somebody else's, and, you know, just no way you can kind of appease them. They, for whatever reason, have whipped up so much trauma, just the inner state of agitation, that no matter what you do, no matter how much you coo, no matter how much you rock, no matter how what you feed them, what you do, the, the sort of agitation, the hunger, is sort of, it's sort of self-creating. It kind of just recreates itself over and over again. You see that. You can watch the patterns. You know, and then eventually the child gets a little exhausted and begins to relax a little. But then he or she sometimes will recognize, you know, that it's starting to dissipate. And in a way, they kind of pick it up again, whip it up again. And they start, you know, the sob, the screams, the tantruming increases. It's really neat. It's important uh, to watch children because they do what we do, but it's not as defended. It's not so decorated. 
as when we do it, but pretty much the patterns are the same. We just, you know, we're just a little more clever in our tantruming. You know, we do it in the privacy of our homes, you know, the way we put the pot down or slam the door or the kind of curses that we're happily sending out in our minds, but we would never say out loud except when we're really provoked or it slips. So we want to become students of this uh, feeling of scarcity and hunger, endless hunger, you know, kind of uh, existential restlessness versus a, a feeling of abundance and uh, upwelling and a heart that goes out everywhere. A heart that just naturally connects, it's naturally sensitive, but not a sensitivity based on hunger or neediness. Because, you know, a lot of times we're vigilant and quite sensitive, but it's strategic. It's like we're sensitive because we're looking for something. Like an animal is sensitive. You know, when my cat walks around sniffing, it's, it's very sensitive. It's very awake in a sense, but it, it's got an agenda. You know, it's looking for uh, food or it's, you know, it's sort of interested if there are other cats around, you know, that sort of mating instinct and territorial stuff and it's not a kind of a natural generosity. I like the image, I like the practice of generosity, this natural receiving and natural giving. So it's not just giving out, it's also a receiving. It's like when there's sensitivity without the self-centeredness, when there's sensitivity without the ignorance, you know, the fear-based ignorance, the aversion-based ignorance. So then sensitivity expresses itself as compassion and kindness and generosity. In the commentaries, uh, they always, uh, with all the different uh, qualities of the mind, they always reflect on what's the proximate cause. So what is the proximate cause for generosity? And they say the, the proximate cause is the recognition of something to give. And this is what I mean by this sense of abundance. It's not even a specific thing to give. It's, it's the... What we actually have to give is that there is a sense of uh, fullness, the fullness of presence, like the fullness of being here or the fullness of being here as a sensitive being. So as a sensitive being here now, we can just tune into this right now because this is true to all, for all of us right now. You know, being a sensitive being and, and when we're here as a sensitive being, without any, without focusing on needs or fear, which is sensitive. Now, we may be sensitive to the fact that we're cold, 
or sensitive to the fact that we're hungry, that's okay. Or even sensitive to the fact that we're lonely. Or we might be sensitive to the fact that the person next to us seems really relaxed or really agitated. Or sensitive to the fact that there are a lot of people in this room that look kind of nice. People that I wouldn't mind being in a room with. So whatever it is that we're sensitive to, sensitive with, when we're not, uh, when we're not having, we're not caught by this inner gravitational pull to self, to me, to the needs that I have, then there's uh, just the, the sensitivity naturally connects and responds. We don't even need to plan it. It's like uh, I'm assuming that person that talked about saying God bless you, you know, it's not like that was planned. Okay, I'm going to say God bless you because I have this abundance and or whatever for whatever reason. There's a, uh, some of you might know of James Berez. Uh, he's a teacher at um, Spirit Rock out in Northern California. And he and a bunch of other Western Buddhist teachers, um, late 80s and early 90s, went to India to see this teacher, not a Buddhist teacher, a kind of Hindu mystic teacher, Punaji, very well known back then, um, among some circles at least. And he was a, what's called an Advaita Vedanta teacher, sort of a, a aspect of the yogic mystical tradition and uh, evidently a great teacher, seemed that way from what I've heard and read. And James was introducing himself to Punaji in India and explained, you know, that he's a Buddhist teacher and that we teach mindfulness and loving kindness. And, he, and then he goes on and we especially emphasize dana or generosity. And Punaji immediately jumped in and said, there's no such thing as generosity. <laughs> Which is, in some ways, I think a really important teaching. And he went on, I forget, forget exactly what he said, but, but the point was that generosity is what's left. Generosity is kind of the natural state of the heart or mind. Or it's the state of the mind, the state of the heart that's unafflicted with self, with self-centeredness. That's why nature is such a good metaphor for generosity. You know, like the apple tree, for example. I mean, it's kind of a cliche, you know, that the tree grows its fruit and it drops. Now, you could say, well, somehow the tree is being strategic because it wants, you know, the deer to eat the apples so that it poops over there and it gets more and more sort of... Uh, sons and daughters <laughs> all over the forest, you know. And eventually I'll be, my progeny will be the, you know, number one progeny in this woods. But, but the actual process, there's no center to that apple tree, you know. There's no strategicness to that apple tree. The fruit arises and is given away it's true in so many ways in nature how things come and go are offered freely. The sun, you know, warms us. 
the air is replenished. I breathe out, you breathe in. <laughs> so once we insert, impute a sense of self, then all of a sudden this very natural dynamic of sharing. I mean, what is a better description of nature than this process of sharing, this process of things codependently arising, codependently playing with one another, codependently offering one another, then sharing. I mean, it's what we, we get taught in kindergarten, you know, how to share, how to take turns, how to get along with one another. And, you know, all the time, actually, the moment is teaching us that if we look at it a particular way. It's really just a matter of shifting the gaze or shifting the understanding. You know how that is, like, for me, it's relatively easy when I'm reading the news or hearing the news, it's really easy for me to put on a particular view where I see things in very divisive terms. I don't know about very divisive, but in divisive terms, you know. Um, just like my mind highlighting the differences of opinion and the different forces competing, you know. Will this person get his way? Will Paul Krugman's point of view get, you know, overcome the point of view of Larry Summers and Timothy Geithner or, you know, it's just all these sort of forces. And, you know, we talk about it that way often and the news reports on it in that way. And we like that, you know, it's like free market. I, I studied economics in college. And um, so we, we have this kind of understanding that, you know, there, there are these competing forces and somehow the most efficient equilibrium comes out of all these different competing forces striving to maximize their own benefit. And I, and I think it's really true. If you look at things a particular way, that's what you see. You can, you can highlight that and see that. But we very much create, how we look very much creates the world we live in. Because we can see things in other ways too. Like for example, we could be paying attention at any level, you know, the level of journalists and politicians or the level of the people here in this room or family. And just over and over again, moment by moment, just seeing that there's a human being doing the best he or she can do. There's a human being with a conditioned mind, with habit energy, doing the best they can do. Their life is unfolding naturally, lawfully, and their understanding of their life unfolding, that understanding, that wisdom that they have is also unfolding naturally, lawfully, due to causes and conditions. And it's not just an idea, it's an actual experience. Just like when we have a narrow point of view, it's our actual experience of feeling I mentioned this the other day, you know, like a hunted, haunted, and hungry animal. That's actually our experience when we're looking from a particular point of view. And when we look from another point of view, we have a different experience. 
that's not our experience. We feel connected. Even if somebody's being kind of abusive, if we're in that place, we don't take the abuse personally. We, we're, we, that doesn't mean we don't protect ourselves. We don't get out, you know, remove ourselves from the abusive behavior. But we understand with compassion that this person must be really suffering if they're acting out in this way. He or she must be really hurting. I care about your pain. I care about your confusion. May you be free. Even though we might be very quickly leaving the room or you know, doing whatever we have to do to protect ourselves or protect other people. But that's the understanding. Like uh, Sharon Salzberg, many of you know of her. She was in India once studying with Menindajri, one of the well-known um, Asian teachers of many of the Western teachers, died a couple years ago. And uh, she was with a friend and they were on one of those little taxis, I think maybe even a rickshaw that was being pulled. But anyway, as they were going through some crowded street, somebody tried to grab her and pull her off. And, uh, you know, she didn't know what to do and her friend I, somehow got the guy away. And when she told her teacher this, he said, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and beaten him. <laughs> you know, not to just to sort of feel like uh, strong action is always bad. But just because we have to take strong action sometimes doesn't mean we need to hate or close our heart. It, there can be that wisdom that understands that, that feeling of abundance, <clears throat> that things are this way, that we can, the heart can open, that our life can flow out of this connection, this feeling of being receptive and open. It doesn't need to have to flow out of a narrowness. It can't actually. What, what comes out of narrowness is narrowness, heaviness, rigidity, tightness, and uh, you know, ineffectiveness really. And what comes out of a sense of wholeness and connection is that you know, unstoppable compassionate action, unstoppable generous action to ourselves and to all beings. So it does, it's not a exclusive, it includes ourselves. It's not like everyone is deserving of love and generosity, but not me. <laughs> I'm somehow outside of the circle. You know, it's not that kind of, um, it's not that understanding. That's the whole, the whole definition or the whole, uh, um, movement is toward a universal quality of love or universal quality of generosity. So of course we're always included because we're the closest, we're always the closest to our love and to our generosity. We're the first being. <laughs> it's always out from there, you know, concentric circles from there, but it, it always starts with ourselves because we're right here. This life, this mind is right here. So we'll keep coming back to this over and over again for the next four weeks, this first perfection of the heart. Learning to recognize the, the already present qualities of generosity, this feeling of abundance. Look for those moments during the day, during your sit, 
where you feel a sense of fullness. And don't be surprised. You might find them in really difficult moments. <clears throat> One of the most available experience of generosity or this feeling of abundance is when we meet our own pain, when we actually fully show up, stop resisting our own sadness, our own physical pain, our own confusion with a loving heart. That's, in, that's a moment of generosity. It's like, just like it's exactly the same as if we sat down with a friend when we have a lot of other things to do and we're, we're not so comfortable with their level of suffering, but we sit down with them anyway and we hang out knowing that we don't really have anything to fix their suffering, which makes it all the more difficult to be with them. We just were willing to hang out with them. We can do that with ourselves. That's one of the most available ways to have a, a direct experience of dana or generosity, to freely give our life to this moment as it is, to this heart, to this body, to this personality, to this life situation as it is. This is a great act of generosity. And as the Buddha says, generosity is a beautiful quality. It's a quality of joy. It really takes care of us, supports us. So please, uh, now tonight, uh, with the time for discussion for the next 15 minutes, but also in the weeks ahead, come back, bring back your insights, what you're learning from your life uh, to share with the group. It will be really useful. And of course, any questions that you might have. So any thoughts that you have now that you'd like to share with the group or questions? Yeah, Clint. Um, one of the things that comes to mind when you talk about generosity is something that's kind of happened to me since I've been practicing. And, and um, was, I heard uh, Parker Palmer, who's a very well-known Christian um, writer. I don't know a whole lot about him, but I know he's pretty well-known. He was on that. Quaker, isn't he? Is he a Quaker? Yeah, I think so. Um, he was on a public radio a month or so ago on a Sunday morning and they were talking about depression and maybe some of you heard it, I don't know. And he was talking about he went through this really dark period of yeah. very depressed and um, he said that you know all these people came to him and they're like, no, what what is your deal? You read all these so many books and you get into everything, man, why do you, you know, get over it or put yourself up with a bootstrap and people have all kinds of advice or you okay? Can I get you in? I mean, so there was one person who um, would come to his house once a week and said nothing and just washed his feet. Washed his feet? Yes. Uh huh. And um, he said occasionally they would kind of just go, hmm, you seem a little better today. <laughs> and that was it. Mm -hmm. And I sort of another thing that kind of ties into this thing that's been happening to me is I've learned that how often we go, someone says, well, gosh, I, I feel so bad. He's, no, 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 don't feel so bad. No, we always negate people's feelings. You know? No, yeah. don't feel that. Yeah. And I've, I've started uh, incorporating this thing of saying, oh, I see that. Yeah, it's just acknowledging because when people, like my counselor, does that to me. <laughs> I mean, it's so great when people, if you think about it, when people say, Yes, that makes perfect sense. I see you yeah. feel that way, or you feel that way, and it's it's uh, that moment of bless you to someone is to me it's like the uh, equanimity. Come yeah. back to equanimity. That we're all we're all suffering beings, and we all have this kind of um, 
We have the sameness, as Rodney Smith said in his talk, we have this denominator that we all have that's the same. And it's, it just made me think of that with the generosity, and, and it doesn't sometimes, you don't have to do anything to be generous, like this person who mm-hmm. came to Parker Palmer. He just showed up, and he was just there. And I suppose it said he's doing something. I don't know, it's just kind of made me Yeah, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that, Clint. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, Jenny. Yeah, or to keep, yeah, and and maybe another way to say that same thing is that we have to contemplate, we have to be a student of the experience of generosity or a student of the heart, really, because uh, if we try to, if we try to do it right from an ego point of view, if Jenny tries to do it right, it's never going to be perfect. It's never going to feel right. It has to be more organic, like the expression of our life and the responses in each moment. It's not something we can figure out. And see, that's our tactic, is often to try to... We, we do, you know, we do have this aspiration to want to be a good human being, but we're not sure, like, where that comes from. Where does the good human being come from? And uh, so we think it comes from trying hard to be a good human being, but eventually we get frustrated because it's frustrating to try to be a good human being. It hurts, it's exhausting, and it's rigid in a way. So we just keep contemplating, reflecting on the experience, and slowly we, we develop a confidence or a trust in its inherent you know, the heart's inherent capacity to be generous. And see, then we don't have to figure out who to be generous to or how generous to be. It's just like observing. So right now, like for me, my job, what I, the job I give myself as an ego, as a person like you, is I want to understand, like when I'm generous, what that's like, and when I'm not generous, what that's like. So instead of like telling myself I, I should be more generous, Mark, you know, because the Buddha talks about it all the time, and it will look weird if you give talks on generosity and you're still stingy, <laughs> which would be very easy for me to do because I have a lot of stinginess, just kind of part of my uh, mental conditioning. Maybe it was because I was the middle of a, seven kids. I'm not sure, or you know, both of my parents were, 
young in the depression, you know, and living on farms in the Dust Bowl. And so, you know, I can give myself reasons why I've got all this stinginess. I wish I didn't have all this stinginess, but I do. So instead of feeling like I shouldn't have it or I don't want people to know that I have it, I just try to observe it and see if it works for me. You know, like, so, okay, now I'm being stingy and it's like this. So it feels like this. How does that feel? How does this look? You know, and then in moments, those relatively rare moments, where I'm, there is a more natural kind of generosity giving away, I notice what that feels like. It feels really good. And, and that just gets reinforced. You know, when something feels good, we just do it more. So it's just a matter of are we paying attention to stinginess and that it doesn't feel good and generosity feels good. And, it isn't a, and that will just naturally take care of whether we're giving, being generous to ourselves or another because it doesn't actually matter. What matters are we being authentically generous? Are we coming from that place of abundance or coming from a place of fear? Or wanting people to think that we're generous, you know, kind of agreed. Yeah, Gail. How does it all fit into with sometimes the third option, which is to being a doormat? Hmm. Well, what, <laughs> but, <that's, laughs> but would that be a way, would that be in any... Yeah. <laughs> but would you be taking care of yourself in that? You wouldn't be taking care of yourself. And why wouldn't you notice that? Like, why wouldn't you notice that you're the being that needs taken care of right here and now? What's in the way of noticing this being that's being stepped on? That's what we. But what are you not. I would ask the question what is the mind not seeing here? Yeah. But, but no, really, like to do that reflection, like what am I not seeing here? Because if there's a sense, if there's some sense that uh, something, it's inappropriate what's going on, then that's the question. In any, in any issue in our life where there's some intuitive sense that we're missing something, then ask the question, what's not being seen? What's not being open to fully? And then maybe the, maybe the answer will arise. Oh, I'm hurting and I'm not, I haven't been that aware of how painful this is. Yeah, my sense is it's, a, it's a, a habit of seeing one thing and not seeing another, like a habit of ignoring our own pain, for example, that we have to include. Oh, this needs to be included too. This heart's being squashed and it feels like this. That will move the heart. The heart will be moved by seeing our heart being squished and will respond, the heart will naturally respond to it. We don't even need to have a plan to take care of ourselves more. We just need to feel that our heart's being squashed. And then the response comes from the intimacy with the pain. So when something's off, it's always about something not being seen, something that's happening that's not being fully seen or open to. You know, and that's, you know, that's kind of a disease that we have. Some of us have. Some of us have the other disease. Is that we don't see our heart. You know, we're oblivious to so we see everybody else's. And we actually, you know, part of the disease is that we've got so much pain that we use our attention to everybody else to avoid feeling what we're not feeling. We're not letting ourselves feel. So it's not so easy to turn that corner. We have, to, we have to ask in an authentic way, what's not being seen here? 
What's being missed? What's asking for attention? What's asking for acceptance? And find a way to begin to open those doors. A little bit of time left if other people have some thoughts. Examples of generosity that you notice in your life over the years. Yeah, I forgot your name. Needham. Needham. Um, I'm wondering if you could speak to the hierarchies of generosity that are created sometimes. I just was talking on the phone to my friend in Rwanda, and she is studying there. And after being in the suffering of that place, um, struggling with the ability to be generous towards suffering that is maybe what what she would convince her to do is, you know, this is less suffering than mm-hmm. Like, oh, you had a bad test. Like, get over it. <laughs> that sort of, I'm, um, I'm curious about those hierarchies because I create them all the time. Um, and I, I yeah, I think, uh, I guess I'd be careful about uh, I would just trust the natural response. Like, um, you know, we live in a world where there's a lot of injustice and suffering. And I've seen this. I, I've seen people who are, in a sense, very sensitive and really care about the suffering in the world being very dismissive of people who are um, just focused on raising their kids, for example and not so interested in what's going on in other places. And as if that somehow addressing the big issues is somehow different than taking care of yourself or taking care of your kid or taking care of your garden. So, you know, in Buddhism, things come, it all comes down to intention, like what kind of intention is being cultivated in the mind. And a lot of people addressing really big world problems have a lot of fear and anger and craving in their minds. And a lot of people who are doing so-called self-centered things, you know, like, um, you know, living a very independent life. They've got, you know, they were left a nest egg and so they have a nice house in the country and a very maybe no job or just a simple job and you know and, and don't really read the news and don't really care so much and it's very easy to say where well, this person's being selfish and this person's being generous but we don't really know we only know if we can somehow attune to what's going on in their heart what's really motivating them what kind of intentions are being reinforced what sort of intentions are being dropped abandoned And uh, it's not something we can figure out, like there isn't, because it's really about the actual intention, it's not so much what we do that matters. And it's a a different orientation and this this can, uh, this is, uh, can be a little bit hard to take, but uh, the Buddha taught uh, about uh, the way to deal with the world is to understand the mind. And that uh, 
to sort of deal with the world first before understanding the mind doesn't really work very well. And you know, we have so many examples of countries invading other countries or all kinds of terrible things have happened because I mean, presumably people have justified it one way or another as being the right thing to do. And uh, you know, all the different religious wars that have gone on are going on. You know, all of it is about, I'm trying, you know, this is the right way and you guys should get that. And so there's so much arrogance about, uh, yeah, just, just so much arrogance about we know how to fix the world and so much suffering that's come out of that. And it's because we've sort of put the problems of the world and addressed them before understanding the source of all those problems. All of the problems in the world have come out of this heart, this mind. I mean, where else would they have come from? They're just the natural unfolding of our greed and delusion and fear and anger. I think we have to leave it here. If it's quick, yeah. Yeah, like I was, while you were talking, I was just thinking of two different situations and how they would make me think differently. One is like I'm driving down the road and someone has a flat tire. And I just kind of unconsciously pull over and help them. And, and there's a generosity involved mm -hmm. there. And then I go on my way and I feel good. And, and then there's the person that might be asking for a handout. Mm -hmm. And there's a struggle there for me of whether I did the right thing or not. And sometimes when I go by, I, 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 I kind of beat myself up. And other times, if I help them out, I do the same thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so... Again, what I what I would do, and uh, I, I find that same problem, have that same problem, you know, and, I, and so I've reflected on it away from the situation. I've reflected on what's going on in my heart, and what can I do to cultivate, to strengthen wholesome intentions. So I try to think of ways to be generous, like to address that person's suffering in a way that feels good as I think about it, as I do it, and after I've done it that kind of leaves a good taste all the way through. So we, we have to bring intelligence to the world. So it's not about, I'm not saying that, we, we, that just being spontaneous is always the right way. But, but when we know that we've suffered, like there has been this sort of aftertaste, then, then bring, some, bring some attention to it. Well, what's going on? What was the intention? What, what were all the different intentions, impulses? What's left over now? What might be another way of doing it? So that we, we try and then we experiment and we have this other plan that at least in imagining it feels like a good intention. Then we try acting it out. Does it feel good when you actually do it? Does it feel good afterward? So it's all about like keeping a wholesome intention in mind all the way through the process as we imagine it, as we do it, afterward. So then there's like no trace of anything unwholesome. That's the idea. Can we, can we live in a world where people are asking for support from us without reinforcing unwholesome tendencies in our mind? Whatever that might be for us. Yeah, hopefully people will bring this back up. It's a really good point. Maybe other perspectives on this. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.